0: Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. Before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind our listeners that we do have two event series that they can go and attend and learn more about the topics covered in this podcast. The first one is called the Strata Data Conference, which you can find at strataconf.com. The second one is the Artificial Intelligence Conference, which you can find at the aiconf.com. In this episode of The Data Show, I speak with Ken Stanley, founding member of Uber AI Labs and an associate professor at the University of Central Florida. Ken is an AI researcher and one of the pioneers in the field of neuroevolution, a method for evolving and learning neural networks through evolutionary algorithms. He recently wrote a great post for us called Neuroevolution, a different kind of deep learning, which I highly recommend. Ken is also the co-author of a book entitled Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective, a book I've been recommending to anyone interested in innovation, public policy, and management. This book closes with a case study that hits close to home for our audience. They talk about the current state of research in AI. So we'll talk about the book and Ken's research in neuroevolution. I hope you enjoy the episode. Ken Stanley, welcome to The Data Show. Thanks, Ben. Really glad to be here. So let's start by talking about your field, which is called neuroevolution. And you wrote this fantastic uh, overview post for us at O'Reilly, which I will link to in the blog post accompanying this episode, called neuroevolution, a different kind of deep learning. So let's start there. So what is neuroevolution?
1: Yeah, so I wrote that article partly because I thought, like, actually a lot of people don't know about neuroevolution, and it's probably something that a lot of people would find interesting if they knew it was going on, but deep learning is taking up so much of the attention right now that that people don't hear a lot about neuroevolution. And neuroevolution is something that's been around for several decades, um, but it's been a kind of a relatively small community, and it was people who are interested in how brains evolved. Um, So there you've got the neuro, which is brain and evolution, which is evolved. And that means by evolved means literally like through natural selection or some kind of Darwinian like process. And this is something that we believe is true um, because it's part of the theory of evolution. But what has happened since the biologists talked about it is that, of course, people in computer science thought that we can take inspiration from algorithms and phenomena that we see in biology, which is actually also true in deep learning, which is taking inspiration from neurons and brains at some level of abstraction. Um, But in the case of evolution, people are creating evolutionary algorithms which take inspiration from what happened over the course of our ancestry, and so the idea is something like an evolutionary process might be possible to provoke inside of a computer where organisms or something, artificial organisms, uh, evolve inside the computer because of some kind of selective pressure. And so it occurred to people somewhere around the early 1980s, don't, we don't know, I still don't know exactly when the first time anyone tried this idea was, but somewhere around then it occurred to people that, hey, if you can evolve things inside of computers, maybe you can evolve something like a brain. I mean, after all, brains did evolve. And this kind of one of the interesting uh, motivational insights behind neuroevolution is just that actually the only kit, proof of concept we have of intelligence or real intelligence actually being brought into this universe is through evolution. So, Hey, that could be an interesting thing to actually try computationally, is to run an evolutionary algorithm that has the job of evolving something like a brain. Now, so, of course, so, I just so, well, yeah.
0: let me ask you a question. So, the the name neuroevolution can be interpreted as you know, neuro being in the brain, and then evolution as a way of 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 training the the uh, the algorithm. But then on the on the other hand, uh, when you said 1980, I started thinking so. Neuroevolution 1980, so does that mean that it, it came after the first neural networks were around, and then people looked at the neural ne- a neural network and decided, hey, maybe we can train this using evolution?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it does come after the first neural networks. I think mean, the first neural networks, I think they go back to the 60s. Um, so people knew about neural networks before I think anyone had thought of neuroevolution as a possible algorithm to explore. Um, and so it's, um, but of course we don't know for sure. Like, I mean, I, there's no record to know that like maybe someone in the 70s actually thought about this. Um, but I think the earliest paper I could find was something in the, in the but, 80s. Uh, but I
0: guess, Ken, my question is uh, what is, how closely tied, joined at the hip, is it with neural networks?
1: Right. So that's a good question. So how close is it to neural networks? So it's, it's very related to neural networks in the sense that the things that are being evolved in these algorithms are neural networks. So, so you might say, well, what do you mean by a neural network? Basically, what I mean is the things that are being used in deep learning are neural networks. And the things that are being used in neural evolution are also neural networks. And they have basically very, very similar overlapping properties. So the neural networks that have been evolved through neural evolution algorithms, in some cases, look exactly identical to neural networks that were trained through methods that are known in deep learning. Now that you can have differences, um, you can change some things about the properties of these networks and evolve slightly different types of networks. But fundamentally, it's basically the same technology that's um, just being um, you can think of as trained or learned in a different way.
0: So, in uh, in uh, deep learning, at least right now, the state of the art of deep learning, people start out with a with an architecture, mm-hmm. and then they and then they they uh, train based on some training set. Uh, using that fixed architecture.
1: Right, right. Yeah, and so that's a, that is a a difference. And that helps, I think, to motivate why would we do neuroevolution? I mean, your question basically, although you're not directly asking that, I think it speaks to this question of why would we do this when you could say, well, we just why don't we just use deep learning? It has had a lot of promise. But the motivation in neuroevolution is and was different. I mean, I think people were interested in how the architecture of the brain came into being. Um, and the architecture of the brain appears to be a really fundamental and important aspect of the explanation for why it is as intelligent as it is. In other words, you have all these parts that are connected to each other in obviously an important way. You have the cortex, you have the thalamus, you have the hypothalamus, you have the cerebellum. However you want to break it down, you have different cortical areas, but that's called an architecture. That's basically a topology in terms of what is connected to what. And we were interested in the field of neuroevolution in explaining how something like that could come into being. And one of the most fundamental and and confusing aspects of this is, how did it get so big? I mean, it's gigantic, like the human brain has 100 trillion connections. And that's lowballing how complex it is, because it's made out of more than just connections. So search algorithms that we know today generally don't search through 100 trillion dimensional spaces, or let's say, even build things of 100 trillion parts. But we're interested in how could we make algorithms that actually design the architecture of something of that size for the purposes of being an intelligent machine? Um, and so I think that the motivating question was slightly different from deep learning because deep learning was kind of like, well, given an architecture, what's the algorithm inside of that architecture that makes it actually get the weights or the, the settings that will make it smart? But here we're saying, where do you get the architecture in the first place and maybe the weights as well? So we, we could, sometimes we can evolve, you could think of them as artificial organisms that are born already knowing what they're going to know. Um, so they're sort of like all instinct. Or you could evolve things that then learn during their lifetime, the way that we actually see in nature. So you could evolve a deep network that then is trained through deep learning, for example. So there's lots of combinations and hybrids of the two that you can imagine.
0: So uh, in, in the deep learning, uh, you have a fixed architecture and then people, for the most part, use stochastic gradient descent or some, some variation of it, right? So, right. What does, so So for people who aren't familiar, what does it mean to train something using evolution?
1: Right. So, I mean, for people who are familiar with neural networks, mostly they are familiar with stochastic gradient descent because that's the algorithm of choice in deep learning right now. Um, And that means comparing the outputs uh, of the neural network roughly to what they should have been and then changing the weights to make it a little closer to what it should be, to what you know it should be or think it should be. Now, in in neuroevolution, you don't don't play the game that way. The neuroevolution is very different. The intuition in neuroevolution is not about changing things to make things closer to what you want. Rather, it's much closer to the intuition behind breeding. And actually, that makes it easier to understand. Like, I think for most people, the people who don't think about neural networks in general, the intuition behind neuroevolution is actually easier to understand because most of us are intuitively familiar with the idea of breeding, which is like, you know, you've got some dogs or you've got some horses and some of them are better than others in some way, like maybe they're faster. So you say, I care about the, the speed of my horses, so I'm, I'm gonna have the, the faster horses breed and, and the ones that aren't as fast, I won't breed. And that's called breeding. And neuroevolution is just like that. It's got that intuition behind it. So basically what you're saying is, I've got a bunch of neural networks, not just one, so I might randomly generate like 100. And then each one of those neural networks would be evaluated in a task, like say, try to get a robot to walk, that could be a task. And so 100 neural networks will all try to control some body, and then we would, and of course they're all gonna be bad because they're all sort of random brains, but then we would choose the ones that were better. You're always going to get statistical variation, or at least usually you would get statistical variation. So there's some things are better than other. And then we say, well, let's just choose the ones that were better, and they'll have children. And then the children will be slightly what, different no, from the parents. What does
0: having children mean?
1: What does it mean? Right, so in a computer, these kind of metaphors start to be hard to understand. So it means basically that, So we generated a bunch of random brains, so we have like 100 candidate parents, but they're not all going to get to be parents because the ones that are worst aren't going to be chosen. But some of them are good or better than the others, let's say, not necessarily good, better. Among those better, we'll choose, let's say, one. So we're thinking asexually in this case. It could have been sexual, but let's say asexual. So we choose one parent and we say, this is a really good individual. He's better than everybody else. And so what we're going to do is we're going to use that individual's brain structure to generate a new brain that's similar, but not exactly identical to the parent brain. And so you could even think of it as like, there's an artificial DNA inside of this system. It's like DNA in our bodies uh, describes how our brain will be built. And in these artificial systems, there's an artificial DNA, which is basically a description of how to build the brain for this artificial organism. And if you want to have a child, then what it means is we take your DNA, we slightly mutate it, just like happens in nature, and then we build the new brain of that slightly mutated DNA. And that's your child. In this case, it's just the brains having a child. So it really is very much like what's going on in nature in terms of like, you know, individual animals have, in, have children, and, and this is actually happening in neuroevolution algorithms. We're literally breeding the brains.
0: So in in your uh, survey article for us, which is excellent because it gives a historical tour of how uh, the field has changed over time, let's actually just discuss the end point, which is uh, what is the state of the art now? So... In other words, uh, what, are, what are the neuroevolution algorithms that people are using now? So in other words, I think in the in the start, as you described in the article, you had fixed topology, but now mm-hmm. now, now that's gone, right? So now you can have topologies that evolve. so what else yeah. what else is in the state of the art? Yeah, so in the
1: state of the art today, it's true that that something that's been developed over a long period of years is the ability to evolve variable topologies are different architectures, which of course is, is one of the inspirations for doing this. Um, and there are pretty sophisticated algorithms for evolving the architecture of a neural network. In other words, what's connected to what, not just what the weight is of those connections, which is what deep learning is usually concerned with, but also how they're connected. There's also an idea of how to encode very, very large patterns of connectivity um, this is something that's been developed independently in neuroevolution where there, there's not a really analogous thing in deep learning right now, which is this idea that if you're evolving something that's really large, then you probably can't afford to encode the whole thing in the DNA. In other words, like we have 100 trillion connections, like I mentioned, in our brain, but our DNA does not have 100 trillion genes. And in fact, it couldn't have 100 trillion genes. It just wouldn't fit. Um, that would be astronomically too high. So then how is it that with a much, much smaller space of DNA, which is 30,000, about 30,000 genes or so, 3 billion base pairs, but how would you get enough information in there to encode something that's 100 trillion parts? And that's issues of encoding. And so we've become sophisticated at creating artificial encodings that are basically compressed in, in an analogous way where you can have a relatively short string of information describe a very large structure that comes out, in this case, a neural network. So we've gotten good at doing encoding. We've gotten good at searching more intelligently through the space of possible neural networks as we originally thought that what you just need to do is just breed by choosing among the best. Um, So you say, well, there's some task we're trying to do and I'll choose among the best to create the next generation. We've learned since then that that's actually not always a good policy. And sometimes you want to explicitly choose for diversity. um, And in fact, that can lead to better outcomes. So we have a more powerful search uh, operators that make more intelligent choices for investing in the long run. Actually, it's a little bit related to investing, where like you place bets and you don't necessarily assume all your bets are going to turn out well, but some of them will. And finally, we've had some interesting recent results in uh, in reinforcement learning. We've seen that large neural networks, uh, very large neural networks can uh, apparently be trained um, in tasks that were thought to be recently the province of deep learning um, and do about as well. Um, and this uh, means that neuroevolution is, in some areas, um, at least um, uh, possibly, uh, competitive directly with um, the kinds of things that deep learning does. And this is an active area for exploration.
0: So, on a, on a practical level, Ken. Um, so I'll rattle off a few questions for you about just the practicalities. One: uh, How big are the network these days that we're talking about?
1: Yeah. So the. Um, it's been it, one of the uh, core obstacles in neuroevolution has been that there's been a belief that there's sort of a limit to how big um, a network you can optimize through just evolution because a lot of people think that evolution is lacking the gradient information that uh, that gradient descent has access to, and therefore it, it will basically not scale as well to much higher or larger spaces um, but there are ways to get around that um, and Uh, there's more than one and they've shown promise. So in other words, we've seen neural networks with millions of connections evolved um, or on the order of a million or millions actually is true. Um, And there are different ways that this has happened and they have different stories behind them. So one of them is the indirect encoding that I mentioned, which is like this compressed type of encoding. Um, Indirect encodings and the algorithm there that that comes from my work is Hyperneat, which uses an encoding called a CPPN or Compositional Pattern Producing Network. But those allow us to evolve very large networks that have up to millions or even more connections. But then also this recent result I just alluded to in reinforcement learning, that comes from OpenAI, um, and they evolved reinforcement learners, which had at least hundreds of thousands, maybe, I I, forget, I don't know the exact number, but it, it was on the same order as the deep learners, so it could have been in the million, million range, um, without an indirect encoding, um, and that was a surprise.
0: Do you think that, uh, since you, since I guess... Uh... Uh, one, of your ins- one of the inspirations of people in your field is the human brain. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of uh, complexity connections and neurons in the human brain. And as we've seen, some of these neural networks, deep learning architectures have hundreds of millions of parameters, right? So do you think that uh, that's kind of a necessity in some ways that uh, if you want something that uh, mimics an intelligent, Mm-hmm. Uh, being that uh, you will have a complex uh, architecture at the end.
1: Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of reason to believe that something as functional as human level intelligence is probably something big. It probably has a lot of parts. The exact number, it's not clear. But one angle to think about this is like, well, you know, we, we have 100 trillion connections in our brain, also 100. Actually, that boils down to 100 billion neurons, but 100 trillion connections. So if you're going to hypothesize that you could do something similar with a much smaller structure, how many are you proposing to eliminate? You know, if you eliminated 99% of the connections in the human brain, you're still left with a trillion. It's not like you really made this that much easier. And do we really believe that you can get similar functionality with only 1% of the structure? Or, you know, it, it gets, it gets um, hard to imagine how we could actually make this, you know, extremely small. And so it probably is something big. And this is something that both deep learning and neuroevolution have to, have to address. And I think they, they're probably ultimately complementary. You know, that's the, that's the thing that I think is important for both communities to recognize that they Don't necessarily, like they may think of each other as competitors, um, but ultimately, in deep learning, we're learning to train large structures. In neuroevolution, we're learning to evolve large structures. And look, in nature, you have the unity of the two. You have something that was evolved, which also has evolved the ability to be trained. Like, in other words, over that, your lifetime uh, aren't learn.
0: You, aren't you describing, essentially, a recent paper from Google?
1: Yeah, so that does that does actually um, come up in Google's recent work, where they tried to evolve the architecture of explicitly deep networks. But by the way, it's not just Google, but there's a whole gamut of places that are doing this now, um, like Sentient is another place. But I could rattle off a whole list. I mean, so it, it suddenly it's suddenly become, in the last year... I don't know why suddenly this year, but it's just suddenly becoming a very popular topic.
0: It's the composition of the two techniques in many ways.
1: Yeah, I think people in deep learning have just kind of realized that there's a frontier there that, that is unexplored um, and that architecture matters. The architecture of networks does matter. Um, this is something that we've seen in deep learning even outside of evolution, that like people have made hand design tweaks to architectures that have had significant impact on the performance of those architectures. And so there's certainly evidence that it matters what the architecture is. And so people in deep learning sort of waking up to this idea that there is an R algorithm that's kind of appropriate for searching through architecture space. Um and that's evolution. And so these could be very complementary in a lot of different ways. Um, and I think that Google's just scratching the surface of that particular kind of synergy like there's a ton of different ways that you could imagine these things somehow complementing or informing each other
0: what is the state of the conversation between the two communities
1: uh it's uh, i'd say it's just getting started which means it's probably weak um but you know it's better than not started at all so because people in deep learning are starting to realize just recently that like evolution is a frontier that has a lot of opportunities for them um, and at the same time, people in neuroevolution are waking up and realizing that what they're doing is relevant to deep learning. Whereas, you know, for a long time, it was a completely separate stream and separate community that wasn't really paying attention to deep learning. Um, you're just getting this realization, I think, this year um, that you know, we should talk more. Um, and so it's not quite at the level you would think, given how complementary our ideas are. Um, But it's moving in that direction, I think just starting to move in that direction. I think there's some some inertia against it, given just this is the way that all intellectual communities work is that they just really get invested in their own ways of thinking, their own terminologies, their own sociology and how their communities work. And so it can be hard to just mesh two completely different disparate communities in some ad hoc way all of a sudden. It's going to take time probably, and it's going to take some proofs of concept where like one helps the other in a genuine way, where that'll like, you know, turn more heads and get more people involved.
0: So in the deep learning community, it seems like people work on, in vision, speech and language and things like this. And, uh, times, and then nowadays, people are also looking at it from time series. So a data scientist working in a company, they may not be experts in deep learning, but there might be examples that they can take, let's say uh, uh, in time series or, or text, where or they can try out deep learning and apply it for data they already have. So is there an analog in uh, neuroevolution? Are there kind of uh, practical things that you can use neuroevolution for, for which there are some easy examples that you can latch on to? Yeah.
1: So some of the more popular applications of neuroevolution have been, I mean, one of them very popular one over historically has been in video games. So there's a lot of examples of neural networks being used to control characters in video games that were evolved for various reasons. That was a, a good combination of ideas. Um, there's a bunch of benchmarks that were also developed in the neuroevolution community. Some of them are the same as in reinforcement learning over the years that were established and popular for some periods of time. Sometimes they fall out of popularity, but you can get these things. Um, you can go online and download these things and actually start working with them. Kind of similarly to to the state in deep learning, where yeah, you don't have to be an expert to start playing. Um, and that's true in neuroevolution as well. And that's because over the years, people have created platforms and like. I maintain on my homepage, which you probably will link, so people will probably find it easily, a software catalog library that uh, people can go to to find lots of different neuroevolution packages. And different packages have different benchmarks. I think the main difference from deep learning is that it's, it's, it's a little bit more diverse. Like, there's, like in deep learning, there's a few like, sort of primary packages, you know, something like TensorFlow. In neuroevolution, there's, there's tons of them. And because a lot of neuroevolution was hobbyists or people just independently creating their own packages, on their own. And so it was like a more diverged community and it didn't like converge onto one like standard platform. And so one thing I tried to do in that software catalog list that I created was just sort it out a little so that someone coming in wouldn't be completely lost in all of the options. So I've kind of like highlighted the most used packages and things like that to make life easier to find something and get started.
0: It certainly sounds like that uh, as uh, reinforcement learning becomes more familiar and the tools for reinforcement learning become more accessible, that that's a natural place where neuroevolution can shine.
1: That's definitely true. Um, Neuroevolution, there's reasons that neuroevolution is naturally suited to reinforcement learning as opposed to supervised learning. Like, it's a tougher sell in supervised learning. Because in supervised learning, you have the targets. So you know what the answer should be during training. And you can just use those to modify the weights, which is what gradient descent will do. And so it's harder to argue, well, why would you want to just use breeding basically to solve a supervised learning problem, like learning to classify a set of objects or something like that. Um, But in reinforcement learning, you don't have those targets in the same way because you only have sparse feedback. So reinforcement learning means you don't always know what you should have done. Like you could be driving a car and crash into a wall. Maybe all you know is that you crashed into the wall. Nobody's telling you what you should have done with the steering wheel that might have led up to a different outcome. So you have to use those events to change your policy now in that case. The advantage of gradient descent is less clear because it's not getting as, as high-quality feedback, and it requires more exploration and sampling in order to get the kind of information it needs to make the updates to improve the policy. And so there, Neuroevolution is sort of on more an even playing ground, I mean, in, in, from a practical perspective, I mean, in terms of practical applications. And it's always been the case, actually, even going before the era of deep learning, that Neuroevolution was uh, competitive in reinforcement learning tasks. Um, there were like old benchmarks in reinforcement learning where neuroevolution, for certain periods of time, was actually the leading algorithm. Like something called pole balancing was for a long time really popular and neuroevolution for a while. The neat algorithm, which was the algorithm that I invented in my dissertation, um, was the top performer for a while in that particular benchmark. Of course, benchmarks go out of favor after a while it's once they become too easy. But now this recent result from OpenAI in reinforcement learning with very large networks has sort of reopened this. Like I think people thought maybe well, neuroevolution is no longer competitive. But they showed that actually it is, even with these very large networks. And so I think it remains a viable domain for neuroevolution to compete. I do want to mention, though, you probably have other questions when it gets to you, but I just want to mention to throw in there that there are other things that neuroevolution is good for doing that are completely outside of what you would do normally with deep learning, like things like open-ended evolution, where we're asking questions that you just don't really ask in deep learning, like can you create a system that generates interesting stuff forever? Like That's something you kind of think of evolution, like for a billion years it's been generating new organisms on Earth. That's not that kind of thing normally you think of like in deep learning as a problem that you're trying to address. So sure, addressing issues of creativity, in other words, like creating new, new kinds of art, new kinds of music, um, new kinds of imagery, this is stuff neuroevolution's also been applied to. And there's a kind of open-ended aspect to these problems in that it would be cool if you could just generate new stuff forever that's really interesting. And evolution is well-suited to that in a unique way, where currently in the field of deep learning, really, there's, there's less competition. Um, so so evolution and neuroevolution have a different profile, I think, in terms of like the things that they're going to be competitive on. But somehow, deep learning and neuroevolution seem to intersect at reinforcement learning. Like That's a place they both seem to be well-suited. And there's a legitimate question, you know, like what the best method is. But personally, I don't like to think in terms of being the best. I I think it's probably more healthy to think both approaches are really good to pursue, and they're probably complementary. So we really just want to be aware of each other and each other's ideas. Even at the minimum, our ideas could cross-pollinate, even if we don't use each other's approaches.
0: So I'm going to pivot a little bit and talk about a book that Ken co-wrote called Why Greatness Cannot Be Planned, The Myth of the Objective. So it's a popular book so as you know uh, Ken is a leading computer science researcher but this is a book meant for the general public and what you know as it's a great book and I, I recommend uh, all of you listening uh, pick up a copy and read it but one of the things that really uh, struck me was actually your last case study when you started talking about machine learning or ai research right so you framed it as a uh, you know if you think about machine learning or AI, in many ways it's a it's a search problem. You're searching for an algorithm, right And uh, for whatever reason, uh, the gatekeepers of the field have imposed two objectives, right? So the first one being empirical. is your new algorithm uh, beating some existing algorithm against a benchmark? Mm-hmm. And secondly, a theoretical objective, which is uh, is your algorithm, if your algorithm is good, is it provably good does it have probably mm-hmm. good desirable properties but right. uh, but the whole book is a nice overview of how objectives somehow limit our imagination is that mm-hmm. the, is that a fair <laughs> yeah yeah kind of that, inca- that... encapsulation but then uh, you know ha- having uh, being someone who's interested in machine learning and ai that that uh, example i just cited about uh, mm-hmm. the field uh, being kind of uh, not trapped, but kind of right now we're in, the, we're in a situation where we're all searching in the same narrow area of the algorithm space, mm-hmm. right? So for whatever reason, everyone's using deep learning, right? Yeah, that's true. So, uh, uh, what, so you can, you can uh, kind of give your own quick summary of the book. But first off, what prompted you to write it? Because uh, it seemed like kind of a big undertaking to write a book like this. By the way, one of the things I like about the book is it's just peppered with so many examples.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a strange story, I think. I mean, I, I never set out to to write like a, a popular science book, um, basically against setting objectives. Uh, this wasn't <laughs> a, wasn't on my mind from the beginning, but it stemmed from the fact that we were performing we were performing experiments in neuroevolution that had some very strange results, which were basically that in some cases it was only possible to discover certain types of things, like solutions, you could think of it, or, or nice discoveries, if you are not looking for them. In other words, when they are not the objective, they become discoverable, but when they are made the objective, which is the predominant way of doing things in, across all of machine learning, is to set objectives, and basically you can encode those into your loss function or something like that, but you basically have some kind of objective function. But we found that doing that, in some cases, actually prevents you from reaching the objective. So, to bet, in other words... The way to reach the objective is to not try to reach the objective, which is very paradoxical. Um, and this is an algorithmic, e- empirical experiment. So it sounds almost like it's philosophical. You know, it's like some new age, fluffy theory, like just do whatever you want. But that's not the message that's here. But the, this so, is from, so
0: let me uh, let me just uh, push back a little bit. So it doesn't that yeah. contradict what you or what you said earlier in the sense that if I'm in a supervised learning mm-hmm. situation. I already. Yeah. That, in that case. Of course, I, I know the objective,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. So there are cases where uh, pursuing objectives can be fruitful. Um, and, and this has been uh, clearly demonstrated. And I think that the, I mean, by unsupervised learning, but there are, there are unseen costs. Um, and we may not have yet run into those. I mean, in, for, in supervised learning, for example, but, but there are always costs to doing things in an objective way. Um, and the book, the book does recognize that sometimes pursuing objectives is a rational thing to do. But I think the broader point that's important here is that there, is, there are a class of discoveries for which it really is against your interest to frame what you're doing in terms of an objective. And this is, the reason that we wrote the book um, is because it grew on us, and actually it was, for me it was through talking a lot about this to different audiences, I started to realize that this principle, this idea that sometimes in order to, to make discovery possible you have to stop having an objective. I started to realize that this is speaking to people at a level beyond just the algorithms that they develop. This is actually a personal issue. This is is it's an issue for our society and for institutions, because there are so many things that we do that are driven by some kind of objective metric where we say, are you moving towards the goal that you set for yourself? I mean, it, it almost sounds like harassing to suggest or, that you shouldn't
0: uh, do that. E- even at a more personal level, many people listening to this podcast may work for companies where they have very explicit measurable goals right
1: so yeah i'm sure the majority do i mean it's like everywhere they're they're going to set they're, objectives they're and...
0: set, yeah they they're set on an annual basis
1: yeah and so it, it's just it's like an unquestioned assumption that exists throughout our culture that the primary route to progress is to set objectives and move towards those objectives and measure your performance with respect to those objectives and and so we began to think that i mean given the results that we have which are hard empirical results that It is important to counterweight this belief in objectives that just pervades society with some kind of counterargument that points out that actually there are cases where this is actually a really bad idea. Um, And the thing that just I learned more and more as talking to different groups is that this discussion is not being had. I mean, we're not talking about this, and I think it's a very important discussion because our institutions are geared away from innovation because they are so objectively driven. And we could do more to foster innovation if we recognize this principle, which I think for a lot of people is scary, because a lot of people want want the security blanket of an objective because they don't trust anything that isn't driven by an objective. It's like, if you don't have a clear objective, then what are you doing? Well, actually, it turns out there are principled ways of exploring the world without an objective. In other words, it's not just random. And the book is about that. It's about how smart ways of exploring in a non-objective way can lead to really, really important results. And we just wanted to open up that conversation like society-wide and not just have it narrowly within the field of computer science, because it is such an important conversation to have. And, and it's like a meta issue, even in the field of AI, as you pointed out. That's why that, that last chapter analyzes the field of AI through this lens. Because we in, in, AI, in AI as a community, as a society, we also are very objectively driven, as you pointed out. And it's like you know, we use objective, we use benchmarks as objectives. It's like you want to do better on this benchmark than anyone else. And that's sort of like your admission ticket to getting published. And that's really just like primitive hill climbing. I mean, if you think about it from like machine learning sense, like what we are doing is the most naive kind of a search. And yet we've set up our whole community to actually operate in this way in the field of AI. And, in and, many you, other
0: communities. and you actually, uh, you and your co-author uh, through the course of the book explain why this can be a bad idea, right? So again, mapping it to the AI example, right? So if if we're all searching uh, this narrow area in the algorithm space, because basically we have to be- beat some benchmark, that means we can't publish papers that are can't beat the benchmark, but may have interesting ideas in them. Yeah. So you might say, well, why should I publish something that doesn't uh, beat the benchmark? Well, it's precisely because there might be some gems of an idea in there mm-hmm. that, if you expose it to a broader audience, someone can take it and improve on it and eventually at some point beat that benchmark.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, this, this boils down to stepping stones. You know, you got to cross some stepping stones to get somewhere great. And we don't know what those stepping stones are. And in the case of artificial intelligence, the stepping stones to a great algorithm may not resemble something that's beating a benchmark. It may be something else. Eventually, you may lead to something that beats a benchmark, but the stepping stones may not be improving on that benchmark because they reveal new principles that are completely different and somehow change our way of thinking, but they are not about beating the benchmark. And it is extremely difficult right now to get something like that through the filter of the review process. And that's, that's a big problem because in some sense, it denies the expertise that we have, you know, because basically what we're afraid of is acknowledging that something is interesting. We were so objective as a community, like in other words, by objective, I mean, we want to defer to something that you can point to as a quantitative, objective, numerical result and say, here's the proof that what you're doing is of legitimate interest, that we are unwilling to actually exercise our brains, which are the things that actually we should be exercising to say that this is actually interesting. Like we deny ourselves that ability, and it doesn't make sense because we're the experts. I mean, if the experts can't say what's interesting, who can?
0: In other words, you have a an editorial board which can look at the submission and say, this is actually interesting. It doesn't beat the benchmark, but it's interesting enough. We should publish it.
1: Yeah. And we don't have the courage to do that. I mean we you know i could say like well this i'm you know i've been working on ai for the last 20 years and this is a very interesting idea it doesn't beat any benchmarks but it's very interesting and that's just not going to cut it i mean it's like well it doesn't beat the benchmark i mean this is like not good enough and so actually it's an excuse not to think you know cuz we, we don't really need reviewers we we could just have a machine check the results and see if they're better and then we don't actually have to read the paper and think about the idea it's a basically an excuse not to think about things And it's related to this idea that like our whole society is just so preoccupied with objectives that we ignore the idea that there are really interesting stepping stones that are clearly opening up whole vast frontiers of possibilities that we're just ignoring because of this.
0: There's another idea in the book that I want you to talk to our audience about, which is this notion of novelty search and how it applies to this topic we're talking about, the myth of the objective. So explain what you mean by novelty search.
1: Right. So novelty search is one of the, the practical fruits of this insight. You know, we had this insight by, by during, doing certain kinds of experiments that were showing that sometimes the best way to get to somewhere of interest to us is to not be trying to get there. So what we said to ourselves is, well, can we formalize that in an algorithm? Can we make an algorithm that doesn't have an explicit objective and that instead is just kind of finding more and more interesting stuff? And that turned into what is now called novelty search or the novelty search algorithm The novelty search algorithm is an algorithm that searches only for novelty. So there's no particular thing it's trying to accomplish. You don't define an objective. It just searches for novelty. And I would point out, some people like to to equivocate and say, well, novelty then is your objective. But I, I really don't like that way of thinking because novelty is very different from what we mean as an objective in machine learning. Usually by objective, we mean some part of the search space we're trying to get to. Novelty is not like that. Novelty is agnostic about where in the search space you go. Novelty just means you go everywhere. So novelty is more like a constraint that you use to decide where to go next, but it's not somewhere you're heading. It's not, a, it's not a destination that you're heading towards. And so we created this algorithm that basically follows gradients of novelty. And what was just amazing about it was that in some domains, it was actually working better than an equivalent algorithm that was rewarded instead of for novelty for actually getting closer to the objective. So in other words, not trying to solve the problem was better at solving the problem than, a, than an explicitly rewarded algorithm that was trying to solve the problem. And these were like paradoxical results in the field of evolutionary computation and neuroevolution that, as you can imagine, were controversial at first. I mean, people were like, this can't possibly be true. But it is true, and it, the results are reproduced in many domains. And by now, it's pretty much accepted that this is an important principle um, in that field.
0: So, in other words, if uh, mapping this to Atari console game kind of examples, I can train an algorithm that uh, in, in the beginning looks like it. this thing doesn't have a chance of playing this game.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, and then
0: eventually it becomes good at it.
1: Yeah, yeah. There, there is a chance of something like that happening through something like a novelty search. Um, it, it it should be said that it's not the solution to everything. Like, it's not that the claim is that this just solves all your problems. Um, but what it what it really highlights is that having an objective really doesn't solve all your problems. And that probably, like, to uncover the solutions to all the things we care about in this world, there's gonna have to be a degree of searching for things that are interesting, not just based on where we're trying to go, but just because we think that this might open up new possibilities, which is what novelty is. Novelty means a new thing that we didn't know was possible has now come into existence, and that leads to more novel stuff. And so this can be used to do things uh, like solve some problems where like, other algorithms could get stuck, like, like potentially a game. So actually, to, to make it a little more concrete, if you think about this, Imagine that you're trying to learn to play checkers and you're playing against the world champion. So basically that's your opponent and you have to learn against the world champion. If, you, if your goal is to beat him, so you have an objective, so beat the world champion, this will go nowhere because you're going to get crushed every game you play immediately because you don't know what you're doing and you're going to learn almost nothing. But if you change your perspective and said, actually, I'm not going to worry about beating this world champion because maybe he or she is just so far beyond me, there's really nothing I can do that has any hope of beating that person. Then maybe instead what I should do is just try to get the games to end in different ways. Basically like being a scientist doing experiments. Like, if I took this tactic, what would happen then? I'm still gonna lose, but maybe it's a different kind of losing. And if I do that tactic, it's a different kind of losing. And I say, I'm just gonna keep on trying to create different outcomes. Eventually you actually cross the threshold to actually learning something substantial about the game, Um, something you wouldn't have learned if you were just trying to win. And this is kind of the idea that makes Novelty Search powerful, is that it's like exposing pathways that you would have just ignored because you were so myopically focused on the objective, but you opened your mind to these other pathways, and therefore you're kind of like a scientist exposed more about how the world works and thereby accumulated information and understanding about the world.
0: So uh, speaking of which, so you and your co-author wrote this book. So what have been the most novel groups that have approached you?
1: <laughs> the most novel group? Yeah. So um, the book did lead to uh, a, a very diverse, I mean, from the perspective of a computer scientist or an AI person or machine learning person, they're really diverse in novel groups to me because I, I don't, generally never thought I'd be talking to groups like I've spoken to groups of medical providers. I've spoken to investment bankers. I've spoken to retirement organizations. I've spoken to the military. Like all of these groups are really preoccupied, and artists I've spoken to, and they're all they're all worried about the effect of objective thinking on their processes.
0: So around innovation, basically, they want them to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Innovation is usually at the center of of the concerns for for many groups. I mean, because it when you're not talking about innovation, like the the power of the argument is much less. Or in other words, maybe this isn't really the argument you should be you should be worried about. Like if you're not trying to innovate, like if you're just trying to like you know upgrade your software to version two from version one, and there's no fundamental uh, innovation that's required. Like you probably don't want to do something like a novelty search. Like you, you just want to focus on your objective in that case. But it's in organizations that are. Concerned with innovation, which I mean, includes like the National Science Foundation, or like at the government level, we have a lot of concern with innovation, like education policy. And, and, and of course, businesses have, want to foster innovation internally in many cases. Um, a lot of creative people like designers and artists are interested in, in innovation. Even the military is inter- interested in innovation because they know that some of their policies haven't been effective and they want to try other things and they want to know what, what is the really good way to explore. And so it goes across institutions that like fostering innovation is a handicap. And the book has caught the attention of some people sometimes in these organizations that like, usually I find that people, when, they, when it resonates with them, it like strikes some really deep chord. You know, they're like, I've been feeling this way already. Like, I didn't need to read this book. But it's like, this just awoke in me this this realization that actually this is true this way I've been feeling like we all have this feeling like we're in a straitjacket all the time like there's this very mechanistic way that society runs or your company runs or your manager runs your group or whatever it is and you like feel like you're trapped like but you don't really know how to articulate it like the hope is that the book will sort of give you the the strength and the 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 confirmation that you're right about this like we should try to do something about this um, there's a lot of evidence that it's not just like I'm saying this because it's my philosophy. Personally, there's a lot of evidence in the book. That's why it has so many anecdotes in it. I really wanted to collect a lot of evidence to show people that, you know what, this is a trend. This is something that's real. And it really is worth having a conversation and thinking about it and kind of changing how we do some things.
0: So uh, in closing, so uh, Ken is a professor at the University of Central Florida, but he's on leave because he's a founding member of the new AI lab at Uber. So I'm assuming you folks are recruiting, and if you are, uh, why should someone come work at Uber AI Labs, and uh, what kinds of folks are you looking for?
1: Uh, Yes, we are recruiting at Uber AI Labs. Uber AI Labs is something new. Uber AI Labs uh, was uh, started when uh, the startup company that I co-founded called Geometric Intelligence was acquired by Uber because they wanted to create a really world-class artificial intelligence and machine learning research lab, which is what we aspire to be. And we already have some really, really great people there. Um, world class people,
0: including 10 uh, co-founders who are friends, uh, Gary Marcus and Zubin Garamani.
1: Uh, Gary has uh, uh, now, Ga- is now an. advisor. yeah he's not there on a daily basis, but zubin is 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 absolutely still involved. um and Zubin is one of the top scientists in machine learning in the world. Um and we have some other we have a whole list of great people. you can go to our website and see. and we are trying to expand. So we want to be a real research organization. Um, and that means that we are going to publish, we're going to engage with the scientific community, um, and we're going to uh, we're going to have real impact the way some of the other famous industrial research labs like DeepMind or something like that have done. Um, and so, because we're new, and because Uber is very much committed to the importance of artificial intelligence, I mean, they believe it's central to their mission to have good machine learning that. That means that we're expanding, and we are, are you, looking so for more people. You,
0: yeah, are you mostly looking for people with PhDs in computer science, or are you looking for engineers as well, or?
1: So we're looking for both scientists and engineers, and we, we use those terms. Like we say, we have job openings for scientists, we have job openings for engineers who support the science, but are just equally important, of course, to create the infrastructure. So if you have the engineering background that you think you could help with the infrastructure of machine learning, or if you have a scientific background, which usually means a PhD, but doesn't have to. I mean, there are some really creative people out there who just sort of independently became really great machine learning researchers, and, and I know a few of them. We're interested in you too. But mostly it would be PhDs for the scientists. And we're interested in the whole gamut of of areas in machine learning. So we're pretty open-minded, which is probably not surprising, given some of the conversation we just had today. So we're going to follow this philosophy that we don't want to be only deep learning, but we're absolutely interested in deep learning, too. We understand it's very important. Um, And of course, it has a lot of complementary connections to other areas as well. Um, So anybody with the kind of expertise that uh, could apply to machine learning, including if you're like in some radical new area that's different. By all means, you could send me an email or you could apply directly through the site. Uh, through our site, we have, we have links for that. And we'd be very happy to hear from you. Uh, we have a lot of openings.
0: And thank you, Ken. Thank you. Really appreciated the opportunity. You can follow Ken Stanley on Twitter at Kenneth Zero Stanley. Thanks for joining us. If you like the show, you can rate and subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.